Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Welcome to episode 65 of Running Matters. My name's Matt North. I'm joined by my co-host Paul Hadfield. How are you, mate? I'm well, Wolf. How are you, mate? Couldn't be better. Good. Our special guest today is Hayley Talbot. Thanks for giving up your time today, Hayley. Cheers, Jess. Pleasure to be here. Happy hour. <laughs> We're having a few Sydney brewery Lovedale lagers. Friend of the show. <laughs> but before we get into it, I'd like to thank our partners, Ranala, Sydney Brewery, Goo Energy, Guy Me Allied Health, Basecamp Altitude, T8 Run, Precision Hydration and Fractal Running Caps. How's the new caps, Hattie, and the new headwear? Mate, I'm loving the uh, the Fractal hat. My Actually, my headscarf got a crack last night out in the bush. Yep. Kept me warm. Thanks, Matt, from Fractal. Yeah. It's a good way to hide the, the missing salad for me. It's nice. <laughs> I like to poke my salad out the top of the thing, you know, yeah. just to show it's there. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> I'd also like to thank uh, Jimmy Carroll for doing the editing behind the scenes. You're doing some great work there, Jimmy. Uh, before we chat to Haley, we might just quickly go to Abby at Precision Hydration and have a chat about sweat testing. Great. Okay, I'm with Abby Coleman, sports scientist with Precision Hydration. How are you, Abby? Um, very well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me again. No problem. Look, I've got a question before we get into it. Will the pH tablets help my hangover? Oh, they will, but that's just between me and you, Matt. Yeah. Can I, I took yeah. some advice, I took some advice from our last chat, trial and error, and I've found them to work. Great news. Great yeah. news. Yeah. I hope that I they're getting lots of news. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to try and save some for training. <gasps> So uh, today we're, we're going to chat about uh, testing your sweat and this must be your area because you're a sweat expert. So what are some variables with sweat from person to person? So I suppose when we've got to consider hydration, you've got to consider two factors. One, how much sweat does a person lose? So their sweat rate, their sweat volume. Um, and the second is, how salty their sweat is. So the concentration of that sweat, are they a salty sweater or are they not a salty sweater? And you really need both pieces to look at that person's net losses and to then prescribe them a strategy or a plan. Um, I suppose the third one sort of then is what does the person do? How many hours are they exercising for? How frequently do they train? And, you know, a bit of context basically around that plan essentially. And, and so you, we're talking about genetics, aren't we? So it's a, an individual thing. Genetics make it up. So if your parents are sitting there and they're sweating watching neighbours, then you should be concerned. It is largely genetic, yeah. So sweat rate varies considerably person to person. You know, Some people are just naturally like a bucket, aren't they? Like they're just dripping. We can all think of that one person in the gym, whether it's ourselves or someone that we see regularly. Yeah. And some people are just like, a light sheen. Go yeah, on, Matt. What are you... I'll do a shout out to Troy's brother, Brad. He's a big sweater. He loves it. Yeah. He's the puddle, is he? Yeah, he's the puddle. But then even within a person, that sweat rate can vary quite a lot. So it's sort of, you're naturally in a, almost a, a section. Are you like a very high sweater, 
or a moderate sweater or a low sweater. But within that, you could vary quite considerably. And that's depending on how hard are you working. If you're working really hard, you're going to sweat more than if it's a recovery run. Um, you know, what is the temperature like? Hot day, you'll sweat more. What's the humidity doing? What clothing are you wearing? Are you all layered up and wrapped up? You're going to sweat more. Acclimation status. So if you're really well acclimatized to the heat, then you'll probably sweat more because as you acclimatize, you sweat early and you sweat heavier. Sweating is your cooling mechanism. So as you get more used to the heat, your cooling mechanism becomes more efficient. Um, so all them factors will, will play a part in varying that sweat rate day to day, session to session. And that's why when we encourage our athletes to do a bit of sweat rate testing, we say do it on a number of occasions and a number of different circumstances, number of different conditions and log it all and build a big picture. And then you have so, some data to look back on and get this really good sort of ballpark figure of where you fall in, in different scenarios rather than it being a big unknown because we say to athletes all the time, How, what's your sweat rate like? And they're like, woof. I mean, I sweat, and it, but they find it really hard to describe. And, and it's very subjective, isn't it? You know, someone that says they sweat a lot could be very different to the next person that says they sweat a lot. And until you start putting numbers on it, it can be difficult to know. Um, and I suppose one thing I should mention there then is, well, when I have my numbers, what, what, do, they, what do they mean? I lose a, a litre per hour. Is that low? Is that high? Is it moderate? That's another thing that people perhaps aren't too aware of. So we would say a, a sort of a moderate sweat rate is anything between a litre to a litre and a half per hour. Moving beyond a litre and a half per hour, sort of nearing two litres is pretty high. Beyond two and a half litres per hour, you're moving into very high range. You know, I've seen a few people up at like three litres per hour, but that is pretty obscene and it's pretty rare they're typically the outliers anyone that loses like half a litre per hour then you're starting to talk about a pretty low sweat rate um so that's that's the sort of range you would see um in people the other factor and something that i think you were sort of getting onto, matt is that sweat sodium concentration is largely genetic and is a lot more stable than the sweat rate the sweat rate is very variable but Sweat sodium concentration being genetic largely stays the same. We could test you today, next week, next month, next year, and it would have moved very, very small amounts, if at all, um, which is nice because it means that, that you then only need to be tested once. And it means that equation of your net sodium losses is far easier because you have this kind of stable um, factor. And then you've got the variable factor of sweat rate that means that sometimes it has to differ in you got to be a bit clever about it, but did that make sense? <laughs> it makes sense. I got you. How many coffees this morning, Abby? Oh, two or three. I've lost right. count. The cafeteria is empty to my left. All right. I thought we came to terms. It was just supposed to be one for these interviews. I know. I forgot. <laughs> okay. So we, we want to take the sweat test now. How do we go through the process? What's the process? So we've got our online sweat test, which is a great resource for for everyone because you can just do it on your laptop. That kind of came about because we were aware that not everyone could come and visit us at one of our centres. The online sweat test is just 10 questions, um, asks you about your sweat rate, what your training is you do, how much of your training is done in a hot environment, what kind of racing competitions do you do, and it builds this whole picture. 
and gives you a, a report at the end of it and a, a rough from your answers indication of where you fall on that continuum. So your sweat sodium concentration can differ up to tenfold. Some people, not so salty, as I said, can be as low as 200 milligrams sodium per litre of sweat. Some people can be super salty, like Andy, the founder, and lose as much as 2,000 milligrams per litre of sweat. So it can be as big as tenfold difference between people. Um, and that online test gives us some indication of where you fall on that, that spectrum. Then we have the advanced sweat test, which is where precision hydration really grew from, was this testing. We're able to pop two electrodes on an athlete's arm, collect a sweat sample from them and analyse it for how much sodium they lose per litre. So we have the, the actual number and we know for certain where they are on that continuum, whether they're low, moderate, high or very high salt concentration. Um, and we have global centres. So again, if that is something that people really wanted to do they could go onto our website precisionhydration.com um, there'll be a list of our centers underneath the contact form at the top and see see if they're close to one um, obviously with the current climate with COVID-19 um, some of the sweat testing the advanced sweat testing isn't happening in certain locations so that's something to be aware of um, but that again is another reason for to take the online test at the moment yeah, so the online test is free, and that also comes with a free hydration plan as well. It does, yeah, and a start a recommended starter pack off the back. So if you read the report, you're interested in trialing it, you get twenty percent off on your starter pack, um, which is a great way to go and start doing some trial and erroring, and then come back to us. We're really big on people coming back to us and asking us questions. And guys, I did this. I think it worked well. Or more importantly, guys, I did this. It didn't work well. You know, how do I improve it? How do I make it better? And we'll work with the athlete to refine their strategy. That's perfect. Abby, thank you so much for your time. We should also mention that if our listeners go to your website and purchase something from the shop, that if they use the discount code Running Matters in capitals with the number 15 afterwards, um, they'll get a 15% discount off all the hydration or electrolyte products. So um, that's great. Thank you so much. That was really informative. Thank you for having me yet again, Matt. Yep. We'll catch up soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. And we're back. Good chat. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Abby. Okay. Hayley, mother of two. Uh, you've got two boys aged six and nine and you're running two businesses. Can you tell us a bit about your company? Yeah, so I've got a little business here in Yamba. Uh, it's a co-working studio and event space and creative agency. So we've got all different types of people that work in there from engineers and draftsmen and scientists to creatives and editors. And um, we're, we're finding it's just a really beautiful space to come together and cross-pollinate and we're getting to do some really great work there as well, running our own projects. Um, my husband um, recently left. Uh, he was a marketing manager for Hurley. He's just left Hurley and he's contracting out as a marketing manager out of our space now. And um, we're actually doing some marketing work for a brewery up here, actually. So um, that's pretty fun. Um, and, yeah, so we, we've got that space. And then I'm also um, – I, I run the – the South Pacific um, of French outdoor company, James Baroud. So we specialise in rooftop tents and unreal road trips and getting out and having heaps of fun. 
Unreal. Do you, uh, do you do you have one of those guys on top of your car right now? Yeah, I definitely do. Yeah. They're so good. You leave your bed made up in it and then it pops up in 10 seconds and wherever you are, you just climb up the ladder and go to sleep. Fantastic. That would make a good doghouse for me. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> would. <laughs> well, it's got to be better than sleeping in the car. <laughs> No, I can definitely recommend. That's unreal. <laughs> All right. Are you, uh, are you seeing a few more people jumping into that shared workspace? Um, probably see a few more people from Sydney CBD moving up that way potentially. Definitely, yeah. We're really, I mean, yeah, we're definitely noticing more and more people passing through. Obviously, Corona's chucked a fair sort of a spanner in there for everybody at the moment. But as we kind of emerge from that time, I think people that have been stuck home with their families for several months are pretty keen to <laughs> come to a quiet space and get a little bit of work done. So we've, we sort of shut to the general public at the moment, but we've been um, operating by appointment so that we can manage how many people we've got in the space and we're definitely getting a lot of inquiries. Yeah, very good. It's a great idea. It's the way it's got to work. So um, we've got plenty to talk about, but I thought we'd go back in time and, and you can tell us how... I believe when you you were just a kid, you you actually got hit by a car. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, it was um, one of those ones. I think that as a parent, like now now that I'm a parent, I have such compassion for what this experience must have been like for my parents. I think we all have those times where those split second decisions can go one way or the other, and most of the time they work out okay. But this particular time, it was really not very okay. Um, I feel really sorry for my mum. We were, my brother and I um, were in the family car and mum was going to be taking us to school. To me, I was in kindergarten taking me to school and she'd put the baby on the driver's seat and I was in the front passenger seat and she'd, before she strapped us in, she'd realised she'd forgotten her wallet and she ran back inside to get her wallet and while she was inside, my little brother was standing on the driver's side seat and holding onto the steering wheel and jumping up and down and turning things on. And, and then I had an awareness that, you know, we were going to probably get in trouble when mum came back out. So I was trying to turn things off. And unfortunately, we were on a, a bit of a hill and the car started to roll backwards and all of the doors of the car were open. And so it was a really bizarre experience. Like I experienced a genuine, genuine flow state where time totally stood still. It, it was so bizarre. In reality, it would have all been happening really fast. But for me at that time, everything slowed down and I just had the peace and clarity to almost pause and look at the situation and choose my actions. And I could see that my little brother, he lost his balance as the car started to take off backwards because he was standing and he fell out of the car and was tumbling out um, of the driver's side door and I lunged to grab him and I, I threw my arms around his waist and I caught him and I pulled him back in the car and as I was bringing him back in the car, it was only moving like so, so, so slowly and as I was putting him back in the car, I felt my body going back out of the car and I put him down on the seat and my momentum had caused me to sort of um, lunge past him and I fell out of the car. And then 
the car ran over me. And um, even in those moments where I could see the, the wheel of the car coming to me, I remember looking at the tyre thinking I was still trying to stop the car. I was still worried about getting in trouble. And I remember putting my back on the tyre of the car and I felt the pressure, like the weight of the car, and I thought, oh, that doesn't feel good. And at the last minute, I laid flat and the door hit me in the chest at an eight centimetre tear in my lung, popped my clavicle, my right femur shattered, um, and the weight of the car caused, like, my blood vessels to burst in my eyes and pretty would have been a pretty gnarly sight for my mum when she came out. And, um, and then I saw the car go back down a hill and crash into a house and... I could sort of see through my poor little eyes that the car had stopped and then my brother had stood back up on the seat and he had a smile on his face and he was bouncing on the seat again and I sort of checked out after that. Um, and then, it, yeah, commotion, ambulance, just mayhem. That's, wow. uh, that's an incredible story. Have, have you still got sort of vivid uh, memory or vision of that in your head? absolutely crystal clear can step back into those moments with all of my senses to this day and it's really interesting this hasn't come up for me at all um at all really since you know I started doing the calendar club recently and um and when I ran that race it, the run hadn't come up for me at all until um I found myself back over on this driveway or this incline where it happened and um yeah pretty crazy but yeah I have really vivid memories of it actually and it's after several decades it's kind of just returned to my awareness there you go do, do the injuries <clears throat> do they affect your running or have you made a hundred percent recovery I get. I mean, I guess I've made a hundred percent recovery. I think sometimes in cold temperatures, the leg, the leg will still bother me. I'm definitely still, like, if I get a knock there, I'm really protective of it. I don't know if that's how psychological that is. It's probably more psychological than actual. I think that I've completely recovered. I know that the lung gives me a bit of trouble um, in cold temperatures. Still, I can get. You know, I've got scarring in the lung, so I can get bronchitis. Um, it was really bad when I was younger. As I've got older, it's, I mean, I haven't had it badly in the last little while. So I think mostly I'm recovered. That's Certainly nice. I just put my body, I just put my body through the ringer through the month of April and came out the other side all right. So we, we're going to, we're going to get to that actually. Um, but before we do, in, in 2017, you were the, the first person to solo kayak down the Clarence River, which is 400 kilometres long. And uh, you're a bit of a, a novice at, at kayaking at the at the time. Yeah. Um, can you tell us why you decided to do that, and and tell us, you know, tell us about your adventure? That I was deeply, deeply called to that. I don't know how else to explain it. I think I was um, really having an existential crisis of who I am and how I'm showing up and the type of parent that I want to be when you know I had the children were small they were I think they were when I had the first sort of had this a silent whisper I call it that I tried to ignore that became this all pervasive drumming um I think yeah the kids were they were little you know 18 months and three or something like that and um yeah I just kind of really started I came face to face with 
wanting to lead my children and not just keep them alive. You know, I wanted to learn skills and teach them. And um, and and at the time, I was down in Sydney um, with my husband's work and feeling quite cut off from my community and dreaming of home and this place that I grew up the mouth of the river where the Clarence meets the sea. And my whole life I'd grown up at the end of this river. And from Sydney, I was thinking, you know, maybe maybe if I, you know, I was journeying the river in my mind and I thought maybe if I just go to the start and, and come home, maybe I'll figure a bunch of stuff out. And um, and I didn't know at the time that, that um, yeah, when I thought this the river was this kind of metaphor that I would literally go and do the river. Um, and that was a real penny drop moment, deciding to do the actual river instead of just imagining it. Okay. And so once you decided you were going to do it, did you have to learn to paddle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I definitely did. Um, I guess it was a really great example of, you know, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. I, I knew that I, I wanted to do this river and I had... I was starting from absolute scratch. The kayak really was just a way to get from A to B. I still wouldn't even really call myself a kayaker. Um, I just needed a craft to get from the beginning to the end. And um, I got a $150 kayak off Gumtree. I filled the baby carrier with sacks of rice. I knew that I needed to get strong. I knew that I had to be confident on the water. I had to be confident in the bush. And so I just kept placing myself in situations where I could um, learn and become more comfortable. I sought out the council of experts in various fields who could assist me with gaining the experience and the knowledge that I would need. And, and I really just for two years prepared for that trip with the absolute faith that when the time came that I would be the person I needed to be to achieve it. And I set about, um, you know, reverse engineering that back to where I was and taking the first step. That's, uh, that's some impressive planning for someone who never kayaked a, a, a day in their life. Um, can, I, I want to talk about a couple of the practicalities. You, you talk about learning how to hunt, trap, forage, use plants for medicine and food, et cetera, et cetera. Did you have any background in that kind of stuff prior to undertaking this, this plan, I suppose? I had a very outdoorsy childhood and a father that always took me along with him. So from, you know, he'd, he'd get oysters off the rocks before I could even talk and feed me oysters off the rocks and be out catching crabs and fishing. And he, he never raised me either way as a boy or a girl. I was just the little one that came along. And um, so I, I definitely had a comfort in the outdoors and, um, and a self-belief, I suppose. Um, he trained me as a martial artist as well from when I was a little girl. He, he's travelled the world. Um, he's an expert in, in that field. And, um, and again, just from being in the dojo with Dad when he was training other people and copying the moves to then being taught by him, um, I, I fell in love with that type of training. And, um, and the older I get, the more the more I fall in love with it. And he's training my children now too. So the boys learn with um, Poppy and um, and I train with him. And so I guess I probably had um, a really big head start, I think, early on with Dad. In terms of the outdoor stuff, yeah, I, I mean, I've always been comfortable fishing and, and catching crabs and, and all those different types of things. But to go to the next level of that, to, as in to be actually able to 
sustain my life in the middle of nowhere, that took a bit of extra help. And so I did courses, those types of things. Um, yeah, bush survival courses and navigation courses and tried to spend time with people who had the skills that I wanted to acquire. And, and the beauty of that journey was that as a young mum, I was sort of getting this knowledge and then teaching the boys and um, the kids are, you know, they're nine and almost seven now and they're, they're, you know, they're good with their pocket knives and they love going out in the bush. We live in the national park and they go out and they test their skills too and that is probably one of, if not the proudest thing for me that um, because I stepped up, it's enabled them to step up too. That's unreal. Such good skills. Um I've got a couple of listener questions relating to those practicalities, I guess. So this one comes in from the florist. So as a, as a regular user of bushcraft toilet paper, is there any <laughs> advice you can give me regarding which leaves to steer clear of in this circumstance? <laughs> um, oh, man. Um, well, I mean, it depends where you are, but it's good to, it's good to go for something with a bit of surface area. <laughs> Um, dodge what, the blade grass. <laughs> what about socks? The socks are okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I wasn't really. Uh, I, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't do the sock thing. I didn't want to have to deal with. Um, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> socks are expensive. Yeah. Um, and, and I've got another one actually. If this is from Troy, Troy's brother Brad. So did you take advantage of the ample supply of scrub turkeys as a food source? <laughs> I didn't see a single scrub turkeys where <laughs> I was. Not one. You're all that running um, the trail. <laughs> there was, I mean, there were edible greens the whole way down. That was what was amazing. It was basically fish and salad the whole way. But the thing that, um, that fascinated me and that I didn't experience until I was in that situation, not in any of my training, was how I wasn't hungry out there and I had so much energy it astounded me how very very little I actually needed to 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 power through like I was doing really big days on the water and not just on the water but hauling heavy gear and I mean the first few hundred kilometers of the river were virtually unnavigable like I was not I was doing barely any paddling it was scratching and climbing and and because the it's the biggest river on the eastern seaboard, so it's very, it's very flood ravaged. All of the trees grow sideways, and there's debris and just tangles of mess that are stories and stories high. That I would frequently get to just the river would just run under an entire forest, and I'd have to just figure out a way through. So there was, um, yeah, it, it definitely it astounded me how very little how I need I didn't my body didn't need much fuel it still blows me away I wasn't hungry mm. what do you pack with you initially did you take you know a great deal of load in the kayak to start with or were you pretty light on very very light on it was actually important to me to do the trip surviving off the river and the land that was a big part of the prep was and a big part of the philosophical and spiritual pursuit or pilgrimage really that I was on that I wanted to just cut everything away and just prove to myself that I could live and survive out there. And the reality was it was different to what I planned. I trained, I trained for that, but 
as I came a bit further down the river, I'd, you know, I'd run into a random, I ran into a, a couple that were lovely and they invited me over for a cup of tea. And, and then as I got further down, I met a farmer um, who, you know, was saw me all loaded up and was wondering what I was up to. And he gave me a pack of two minute noodles out of his truck and stuff like that. You know, I would have been kind of system and systematically rejecting kindnesses the whole way down if I was really rigid about that. Like it's, so I, I gave that that idea away. I actually ran into a hilarious guy in a tinny who had a tinny full of tinnies, and I he saw me and he he drove past me, and then a few hours later he came back past me and he just said, "I've got to ask you, what are you doing?" And when I told him, he was just lobbing cans of beer into my kayak, <laughs> <laughs> and I was and um and then he pulled up. I remember he had this huge big tummy, and he pulled up his shirt and was hitting himself on the belly, and he had a massive 4X tattoo across his tummy. No way. Yeah. So I ran into some interesting crew and he was throwing cans of 4X at me as well. So um, so I foraged a bit of beer out there while I was um, <laughs> up the river too. Right, bush skills. I'm, I'm, assuming, uh, I'm assuming he was throwing 4X cans at you? Yeah, cans. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's unreal. I, I feel immediately emasculated by your bush skills. So <laughs> I think you'd probably be fine out there. Just Such a city boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you you had um, your fair, fair share of hardships during the trip. So you're away, just so the listeners know, you, your trip took you two weeks yeah. um, and you, you sort of had a, you had a few issues. You, you fractured your arm on the, on the second morning, was it? Yeah, morning of the second morning, I had a shocker. I just... At the top of the, it had been such slow going. My first day I made, I progressed five kilometres. That was all I covered on the first day because of the nature of the terrain. And so I was already getting frustrated with how slow I was going. I'd mapped out all of my camps and all of the spots that I wanted to land at on each of the days. And within the first day, the whole lot was out the window because of just how radical and thick it was trying to get down through the bush. So, um, Morning of the second day, I'd, I'd come down through just rocks and trees and rapids and um, and I got to this section and I broke my little policy of not running anything I couldn't see down the other side of um, and I ran, sort of came around this rapid section and I thought I was going to be all right but I there was a big boulder in the way and if you can imagine like a percentage sign with like the rock rock I had one a rock on the left part of the bow and then one on the right at the back and I just got jammed sideways across this section and and um yeah and it was the danger is that if you come out of your boat and you go you're washed under it you can't it's easy to get trapped under the boat and you can't flow down under it and you can't fight the flow of the water to push back up river either so it's really easy to drown in when the river's like that. And so that was my my prime sort of thing that I was aware of was just not getting stuck because being solo, there was no one there to bail me out. So, um, yeah, and on this particular section, I, I got stuck and I was really worried about getting washed under. And in the process of jumping clear of my boat, I sacrificed my arm and I didn't really know what I'd done. Um, it was even... I mean, yeah, I was just fully running on adrenaline and just pumped up and 
took me a couple of hours to salvage the boat. Um, I'd been really, really ridiculed for the choice of boat that I took, being a total beginner with no idea. It made perfect sense to me. Um, and But at the end of the day, it ended up being the perfect boat. I picked this kayak, it's called an Ori kayak, and it's made out of um, core flutes, so like real estate science, super flexy. Um, and it was, it actually, it's like an origami kayak, so it folds up into a backpack. And in the process of getting it stuck and just completely sunk. What? <laughs> An origami boat. Wait, I, I need to clarify. It doesn't fold up into a very practical backpack. The backpack is still probably the size of the real estate sign itself, like probably even bigger. It's pretty impractical. I, used, I, used to, I should tell you, I used to work in real estate and uh, for, for one day, just for one day. But um, I don't ever remember being able to make a boat out of a sign. <laughs> it was a pretty precision bit of engineering, I have to say. Um, <laughs> but the brilliance of it was when it was full of water and sunk about a foot underwater, um, that because this thing folds up, I, if I could get the top lot of ratchets undone, then I knew I'd be able to release the water weight and hopefully sail the boat down off this rock that I had it on. And, over a pretty punishing few hours, I'd managed to get it off and I crushed I crushed the cockpit in the process. I really broke it all up and but sailed it down to a, a bit down underneath this rapid and I thought, if I can put it back together and it floats, like if the boat's going to hang in, then I'll hang in. Definitely had a moment where I thought, there's no way that this is the end of the trip, no way. And so um, put the boat back together but the problem was that the cockpit was crushed then and my legs didn't fit in it so I had to paddle the whole rest of the river with my knees right up sort of underneath my chin it's pretty uncomfortable but we made it you're a savage I'm, I'm impressed <laughs> yeah, I would have packed up bloody oath you would have <laughs> tell, tell me about your mysterious running with the fabled river monster during one of your nights out there in the Clarence this is this is pretty crazy and I still can't explain this. I was in a section where I'd made a really good camp for the night. It was about, I don't know, I remember sitting around the fire. It was probably 8.30 or so when I went to bed and I thought, um, yeah, I'm in, a, I'm in a good spot, packed up, went to bed. About 10.30, and, you know, a couple of hours later, the plovers started going off doing this really kind of, it was a warning call, like they were, they'd been disturbed and which is, unusual for them to be calling at that time of night they're normally asleep and um anyway so I, I I woke up and in my weird madness I thought there's a threat near me I've got to go like there was something just telling me to just go so I got up packed up all of my stuff like I had a great fire great camp spot packed everything up and then got back on the river probably at 11 or so 11 p.m something like that and just charged off into the black and the worst thing that you can do on a river like that is be paddling at night. It's so dangerous. But to me, in those those moments, it just seemed like the thing that I had to do. It was just real, like this intuition thing just telling me to go. And so got on the river, paddled off, became really quickly aware that my headlamp was doing nothing because the fog had come up the river. So the headlamp in the fogs just was doing nothing. I couldn't see anything. So I turned it off let my eyes adjust to the light and I paddled for probably two or three hours. Yeah, it was probably, I don't know how many hours it was in the end, but it was several hours just navigating off the tree line, the black tree line against the slightly less black sky. 
and was just kind of guessing really and every now and then I'd bang into something and I'd wake some birds up that was sort of nesting in the bank or whatever and at one point I was navigating off um yeah off my phone and um and I looked I looked down I looked I checked to see where I was and while I was looking to see where I was the boat must have done a 180 so I packed it away and then like charged off again and then when I checked to see where I was I don't know, a little while later, I realised I'd paddled about 300 metres back up the way that I'd just come from. So that was pretty, pretty, um, yeah, crushing at the time. And then I was really stubborn about it. I thought, okay, well, I'm not giving up and getting off the river until I'm past where I was when I spun around and went back. So I um, continued down past that point and something really, really weird happened. I all of a sudden the boat started getting pulled hard like down and back so not just back but down as well like the front of the boat was 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 up was pointing up and my legs were going up and I was having to lean forward against something I don't know what it was anyway all I knew is is that whatever it was I didn't want to go in that direction so I charged hard against it and just paddled like a maniac until I hit the bank and then I just scooted off the front and got onto dry land and ran up the bank and pulled the boat up and just caught my breath. I didn't know, I had no idea what it was, but I was relieved to be on dry land. Um, but by this stage, it was probably around four o'clock in the morning and it was incredibly cold. So um, I thought, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to get hypothermia. I need to keep moving. So I did, I ran on the spot and did star jumps for about 45 minutes. And then I thought, this is crazy. Like I've got to actually get in my sleeping bag and get warm. So I pitched the tent again, got in. Um, and I remember just going to sleep. I set the alarm and when I woke up, I thought that was the weirdest dream. And, but when I unzipped the tent, I was on this rubbish cow dung mud flat and the whole thing had been real. And that gave me a fright the next day to think that I'd gone completely mad. And, but the really crazy thing was is that the water in front of me was completely unmoving. It was just this stagnant, still section of the river where I thought that maybe some water was sucking me back somewhere or I couldn't put my finger on what it was. But anyway, a couple of years later, I was at this meeting and I was talking to this Indigenous woman about this particular section of the river. And, um, and she said to me, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a river monster there. And I said, what? <laughs> And she goes, well, that's what would have got you because there, there's one there. I've seen it. And apparently there's, she saw some radical serpent, like a massive snake that she just said was crazy. And people talk about it anyway. Apparently it was in this section of the river. So I don't know if some big bloody friggin' snake grabbed me and tried to pick me, but <laughs> who knows? <laughs> uh, was that possibly the night that the bloke gave you a whole bunch of 4X tinnies by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> that was um, that was about four or five nights later, but I could hear that. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you if you're taking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's crazy. It is crazy, but um, yeah, I think it was one of those really weird moments where you know we're taught about our intuition and listen to your gut and all of that. And I'm telling you, I listened to my gut that night, and that nearly ended not very well for me. <laughs> yeah, you should just start listening to your gut. I think. Yeah. Just stay asleep. Stay in your tent. Yeah. Moral of the story. That's right. That's an amazing achievement. It's got nothing to do with running, and we are a running podcast, <laughs> so we should talk about some running. Moving right along to running. Yeah. So there's 
the calendar club that you did last month and you knocked out 765 kilometres in April, um, which wasn't last month but two months ago. It's so baffling that you've forgotten what month it is. Yeah. Anyway, in, in April you ran 765 Ks. Um, tell us about that journey. Like it, was that – was an, is it an American inception or – Yes, it is. It is. And um, so the calendar club was started by a guy called Jesse Itzler and he ran it. He did it in Feb with a friend. And then, sorry. There's only 28 days in February. Soft. Oh, soft. You're right. (laughs) You got the wrong month, dude. (laughs) What a rip off. Um, and then this other guy, Colin O'Brady, um, he he ran it again in uh, in the month of April, and he rallied a whole bunch of people to do it as well. And basically, um, it's you run the miles of calendar day. So obviously, it starts out pretty mellow at the start, like one mile on the first of April, two miles on the second of April, but it heats up pretty quickly. And some people did it in kilometres. Um, but I ran it in the miles um, and by the end it averages out as nine marathons a day for the last yeah not not nine a day obviously nine marathons in a row for the last nine days and yeah gets pretty chunky at the end um, and yeah and I did it I did it in the miles and um, and finished it it was yeah it was a great a great experience Hey, uh, I've got to listen a question here for you, and it's a uh, friend of the show, Scotty Richmond. <laughs> Scoot, legend. He you knows know, me a lot. I'll be excited to see him. You know, Scoot. So his uh, question says, you seemed like an absolute rock throughout the recent Calendar Club Challenge, but you would have had some tough moments in that month. How did you manage to keep going day after day, overcoming the mental and physical hurdles? Well, um, probably had a few different things that were helping me, I would say. Um, The the number one thing that I did from the very first day to the very end was get up really, really early and knock out the miles early. Um, People that did it chose to break up the miles. So some people would, um, especially as it got towards the end, would do half the miles in the morning or half at the end or whatever. I never did that. I didn't break up the miles once. I got up really early and knocked them all out in one hit. And it meant by the end, like, you know, my body was pretty fatigued. So my runs towards the end were five and six hour runs. I was having to get up earlier and earlier and earlier. We had Easter Sunday in there as well. And I didn't want to have the run interfere with my children's um, Easter morning. And I didn't want the miles hanging over my head for later in the day either. So I set the alarm clock for 3 a.m. that day and I went out and I ran from, oh, no, hang on a second. I set it around midnight and I ran from midnight to 3 a.m. or something like that and just cracked it out in the middle and then went back to bed and then got up with the kids jumping all over us for Easter morning because I didn't want to miss that. So um, I was I was so really... chocolate that morning, right? Uh, <laughs> Belted it when I got home, definitely. (laughs) Um, But for me, knowing myself as I know myself, it was more important for me to get up, crack out the miles early and not have the anguish of needing to do the miles hanging over my head for the rest of the day. So the miles were always taken care of early. 
Um, and so that was a big part of it, I think. I wasn't having that mental to and fro with myself during the day to get out and get it done. Um, then there were other times, oh, yeah, I, I mean, there were some pretty unfun parts about it. Um, I learnt how awesome proper running socks were probably two weeks in. That was really handy. Um, got a decent sports bra about two weeks in as well. That was game-changing. Um, <laughs> We've all won them. <laughs> Um, and, you know, and I, I, again, like I called on people like Scoot, who is an amazing runner. And there was so much that I learned on the job um, when I was out there, but I was trying to get advice off people who knew more than me. And um, I guess some of the strategies I used, you know, when I was out there and um, a big one is languaging, you know, like if I'm in pain, I'd never language it to myself as pain. I never frame it that way. Um, I heard other people over the course of the calendar club referring to certain things as torture or brutal or like I never use adjectives like that on myself when I'm running I constantly check in with myself and and check in with areas of my body and ask how it's going and I try and actively listen so that I'm not just asking it a question and not adjusting something I'll I'll listen and then adjust and so one one part there I had really bad pain in my left foot and it was like my three middle toes and it just it was really not fun and but for that I was just trying to rest it in the air when that foot was in the air that was recovery it was just it was I was splitting kind of hairs with it but and then at other times you know I had a had a bad hip at one point and I was really trying to go into that part of my body and just thank it for its service like actually be really really grateful and try and flood that area with gratitude and appreciation that this body was doing this thing that um, I committed to at the start of the month. So um, little things like that, I think, were really helping. Um, gosh, yeah, I had, you know, I had something, I had well over 90 hours running. So that's a long time in your own head. Um, yeah, yeah, especially when you've got, you know, alter egos and shit going on. It's, a, it's just me. River monsters, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I should have. Uh, I should, you know, take a leaf out of your hat. I, I talk to my legs, but it's normally shut up. So next time, <laughs> next time I'm going to say please. It's just and just tell them how awesome they are and yeah. yeah. <laughs> good legs, Wolf. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah beautiful legs. So, so Haley, for such an incredible undertaking, there must have been literally months of planning to get the logistics down for this, right? For the calendar club. Yeah. Uh, I saw that posted on Instagram the day before I did it by my friend Samantha Gash and I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. And that was <laughs> literally the day before. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Did you, uh, did you get, you, you mentioned uh, a bit of a hip issue and a left foot. Did you end up with um, any, any injuries afterwards or did you get through it? So... Because I wasn't breaking the runs up, I wasn't breaking the miles up at all. I wasn't getting, um, I wasn't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how, yeah, I suppose the jury's out a little bit for what that actually means. But because I, because I was running all of the miles in one hit, I did have a longer recovery time for the rest of the day and then the evening. And I was pretty careful about getting in the ice bath. I was icing my legs um, at night and really getting stuck into the tiger balm at night right before bed so massaging I had um 
I definitely had some pain coming in around the back of my left knee and I got stuck into that with the tiger balm and it worked like that self-massaging that area really helped my calves were getting pretty tight and I'd get stuck into them every single night with the tiger balm as well so between the massaging and the icing I think that really helped the other real game-changing thing I did was um I actually I contacted um Maddie Abel from um, DBA runners as well. And I was asking, I asked him for a couple of tips too. And a big one that he had said was um, try and get on the grass. Don't be slamming on the road the entire time. And um, we got a lot of trails around here and I started off on the trails, but I ended up um, probably doing the middle on the road and then the grass. And then I incorporated a lot of, I did a lot of laps of our local oval and the relief of going from the pavement to the grass was instant it was fascinating how much running the back end of the calendar club mostly on the grass I think really helped preserve my joints and my muscles um but ultimately I came out the other side with with nothing really wrong that's really impressive I I do like the idea of changing that surface up I think that makes a big difference for sure um can we talk talk about that final week a little bit um so you've obviously developed some serious fatigue by now and, and you're facing up to running at least a marathon every day for a week. Talk to me about that internal conversation while you're lying in bed towards the end of April. How assertive were those voices getting to, to not get out and run? Um, so I'd never run a marathon before I did the calendar club. So when I got to the marathon day, that was pretty cool. Like I cracked out my first marathon. I don't know how many hundreds of Ks I had behind me at that point but it was really cool to get to that day um but in terms of the voices you know I the number one thing that I did and I did it on day one was I set that alarm clock and when it went off I stood up so I wasn't letting those voices get a word in they weren't they weren't getting to speak because by the time they started at me I was already standing up I was already getting my snacks ready I was already putting my shoes on I was already driving away to where I wanted to begin the run so the critical thing, I think, was just beating beating them at their own game, setting the alarm really, really, really early, and as soon as it went off, standing up. And I journal pretty prolifically as well, so I try and reflect and learn and grow. But to the calendar club, I actually wasn't really journaling. I didn't want to listen to myself anymore in my journal. I wanted, you know, I spent so much time in my head out there. Um, so I guess that's probably the the answer to that was set the alarm early and just commit. And I committed at the start too. So not finishing the calendar club was absolutely never even remotely an option for me. I was always going to finish it. Hey, Hayley, do your voices tell you to go to the bottle shop in the afternoon? Cause <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got those ones as well. <laughs> just checking, just checking. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Cheers. So, look, Haley, apart from, uh, you know, ill-fitting sports bras and in gingy toe socks, what, what were some of the lessons that you learned out of running so far for so long? Practical stuff, I mean, like food, nutrition, that sort of gear. Um, well, when I, yeah, because until the calendar club, any of the running that I'd done, I never, I never took food or tried to refuel during my runs. It was just, I'd sort of just go and run really. Um, so I guess a big part of that coming out of the second week, 
I started to ask people who were runners how they fueled their body and and I learned that you know if I had a, a piece of jam toast before I left and then a half a banana like 45 minutes in or something like that um, and then another I don't know I was having plenty of hot croissants actually they did the job pretty well but um just kind of eating regularly was game changing um, I did notice the energy kick um, throughout that um, having a lot of electrolytes as well um, I felt like I, I don't know I, I don't know if I ever had it as a perfect science but I know that I was getting to the end of the run there was never a a time where I was feeling sick or unwell so I guess I was doing all right in that regard there were probably two sections in the month where I call them my level up days they were where I'd probably hit a ceiling in my ability to cope with what with the load and I felt pretty rubbish on these couple of days and had a couple of day sleeps and um but then I woke up fine and I kept going after that. It was almost like I had to, yeah, to level up. I had to break down a little bit and rebuild a little bit and then get back out there. And I found those days quite encouraging because it meant I didn't feel like I was falling apart. It felt like I was getting more ready to be able to cope with what would come next. That's bloody amazing, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, very impressive. What's uh, what's next on the uh, crazy challenges for Haley? Well, thank you for asking, actually, because I've just decided to do a marathon that I've just found out about. It's part of NADOC Week 2020, and um, which is uh, the 5th to the 12th of July. Um, and there is a marathon um, that's going to be on, um, put on by the Indigenous Marathon Foundation, and their work is truly inspirational. They, they run a bunch of different programs. They've got four um, some of them are like grassroots running programs. They've got a school-based one to encourage Indigenous school attendance and nutrition and health. Um, and they've got a marathon project where um, they get Indigenous runners to, you know, the most prestigious marathons in the world, Boston, New York City. And um, you see these beautiful runners crossing the finish line with the Aboriginal flag draped proudly over their shoulders. And um and I think, you know, we all come to running for our own different reasons. To me, it's like music. It's a place where everybody understands the beauty of running. And um, and I really love the work that they're doing. And so I've signed up to do this marathon, the Indigenous um, Marathon Foundation. It's called the Run Sweat Inspire Festival. And you can register for it at runsweatinspire.org. And your $40 registration fee goes towards their amazing work. And you can do like a two-kilometre march or a 5K run, a 10K run, the half marathon or the full marathon. And um, and I've signed up to do the full. My husband has as well. And we're going to get our kids to do the 5K run. Um, and, yeah, I'm really excited to, to be a part of, of this amazing initiative. I think um, it's a really powerful time for us to come together and I believe this is a really beautiful engine room to facilitate that. Hey, and you should have a reasonable base of fitness under your belt by now, I'd assume. <laughs> yeah, when I thought when I signed up for the marathon, I didn't second guess it too much. I thought, yeah, I know what that feels like now. I think I'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. So, Haley, you're talking about running being your place for meditation, contemplation and spirituality. 
So how did the really structured format of the calendar club running sit in this respect? That's a really great question because that's what really challenged me the most. It was having to, you know, strive in my runs and then I had the Nike Run Club on as well and I I got a lot more obsessive about the distances that I was covering and average pace and things that I typically don't focus on because I run... I run so that all of those chatty voices fall silent and the real voices speak, you know, where you have those revelations in nature. And over the course of the calendar club where I was much more in tune with distances and times and things like that, I really craved stillness after the calendar club finished. It was quite fascinating to me how busy my mind was after all of that running I would have thought it would have been the opposite um but I was I was really really busy in my head and um so that was it that was interesting for me um and I guess a lot of the strategies and tools that I learned and applied and worked with in the lead up to my river trip um and that I sometimes get to speak to young women about and and, and um, I do some, some workshops with young women from time to time and I really got to apply a lot of that stuff in the calendar club and it was really great but the thing that got me was yeah just how it, running wasn't meditative for me I wasn't getting to have that contemplation and that spiritual stillness that I get when I run in the bush and I'm not thinking and so to get that that took a few weeks after the calendar club I mean I didn't run I didn't run for a few weeks I had a big rest but my first run back in the bush with nothing like it's pretty daggy but like I cried it was just beautiful I felt like I was home that's fine I do it every morning Maybe you're, maybe you're just running too hard. I cry when I run too hard as well. <laughs> maybe I don't run hard enough when I run. <laughs> I think it's my plan of fascia that makes me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Uh, Hayley, you describe being able to find what athletes call the zone or flow state while you're out there running. So tell me what this feels like to you and how do you think you're able to sort of achieve this state of consciousness? Yeah, it's really like it's holy for me. Like it's a, I get to this place where that feedback loop of thoughts in my mind is that's I don't have that. It's something else. There's something else that speaks. And I think a big part of it is where I go running, there's nobody else there. It's really pretty quite remote out in the bush and there's no one else around. And um I just sort of fall into a, into a rhythm and I run the trails that I did with my dad when I was a little girl and, um, yeah, it feels really welcoming and, yeah, and, and that's kind of, I don't know, I just feel like it's, it's a different place that speaks to you when you run from that place. It feels like revelation, you know. I find that fascinating. How do you actually learn from yourself? But you do when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you just – going through the motions and things are swirling and yeah I think the big thing is that I when I run I'm always out in the bush that's yeah. the, it's a good place to be you do all your, all your best thinking out there that's for sure that's for yeah. sure solve the problems of the world um talk to me about the role of meditation in your planning and execution of all these crazy adventures that's a really big part of um when I'm working on something that 
has begun as an idea and it's in an area that I've never worked in and that I don't have experience or skills or knowledge in, it's really, um, you know, I, I see it working. I see the end goal playing out exactly as I want it to play out and I visualise with all of my emotions. I feel what I will feel on that day that it crystallises. I see what I'll see. I hear what I will hear. And I really, I don't just visualise with my mind. I visualise with all of my senses. And from that point, it becomes a process of, of breaking the vision up into steps and breadcrumbing back to where I am on a particular day and taking the first step. And most of, nearly all of the time, it requires um, aligning myself with the people who've got the knowledge and got the skills and learning from them and um, and taking the first step. And yeah, it's, a, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's science backed as well. I mean, I won't go there because I don't have those skills, but I, I or that training, but um, the reticular activating system is something that I think if anyone studied, study visualization, you will, you will know about that. So that's um, proven, but it, I mean, it, it, it's worked for me my whole life. I've been able to bring things to pass that when I had the idea, I didn't have the knowledge or the skills, but I got there and, um, and it's been through visualization and being really, really focused and applying myself and getting amongst it until it's done. That's fantastic. I, like, I love your quote, there is really nothing I can't do once I set my mind to it. So obviously a uh, particularly strong-minded individual achieves some amazing stuff. Um, I just want to quickly touch on, on pain. So I, I spend most of my day explaining to patients that pain is all in the brain. Um, uh, you describe the brain as a mental muscle. So what do you do to make that muscle as buff as possible? Um. I think that it's, you know, I liken it to like if you go surfing and you get a knock from your board and you got your wetsuit on and it feels like a dull pain and you think, oh, it's no big deal and you keep going. And then you come in, you pull your wetsuit down and then a massive gash pops open, there's blood everywhere. You know, you were going to assess that differently for at the time of the knock than, you know, some type of self-preservation action that you need to undertake after you've perceived you've got that particular injury. But you know, the brain is processing it differently at different times. And for me, like, um, I try and elongate that space between the feeling, like feeling without judgment, trying not to judge it, but to be present with it and, um, and then reframing it. So thinking of it a different way, like you can't, you can't always do it. Sometimes there are legitimate injuries or pains that need to be dealt with and that's the right thing to do. But Nine times out of ten, when I'm feeling pain, I can change it into something else that enables me to continue and cope. And I think it's really relevant to running because there is so much, you know, pain with running. Um, and, yeah, languaging it is a big thing. Um, and I guess just just intercepting it and trying to frame it differently. Yeah, spot on. Hey, um, can I ask you about uh, some of your mindset strategies? You mentioned a, a bit of Wim Hof and a bit of Buddhism practices. I tried a bit of Wim Hof over summer, but when it got cold, I added a bit of warm water. <laughs> you do that too? <laughs> no, I mean, Wim Hof is, Wim Hof is amazing. I think if you, can, if 
you do that program and you stick it out, there you will have some fantastic breakthroughs in that method. Um, I did it in the lead up to my river trip and, and I haven't consistently stuck with that, but I feel like I try a lot of different things and I get a relative level of proficiency and it will serve me generally for a certain period of time and then I'll try something else. But what I find is as the more time passes, I take, I take little bits from each you know, from each thing that I do, whether it's some type of method I've tried or a book that I've read. And I did have this really funny kind of a hybridization of like a bit of Wim Hof and a bit of Buddhism that I'd read in the calendar club. And and it was this idea of, um, you know, with, with his breathing, he talks about um, uh, in the breathing that you can send like oxygenated blood to specific areas of your body that might feel painful. And, um, and in his his scientific experiments and tests that he's done, they put dye in the blood and they watch where the blood flow goes um, when he's doing this particular type of breathing. It's pretty fascinating. I recommend the documentary if you haven't seen it, um, The Iceman. And um, so between that, like actually visualising healthy, oxygen-rich blood going to specific areas of your body, like I was focusing on doing that with my breathing in some of the parts of the calendar club where I was not having fun like my toes or my hip or my knee or wherever was breathing into those areas and but then kind of um there's a really great book called the book of joy and it's a beautiful book in conversation with Desmond Tutu um and the Dalai Lama and their conversations in this book are really beautiful and there's some great um strategies in that book as well um and so I felt like between this Wim Hof breathing that I was doing when I was running and feeling areas that were a bit painful and then this idea of speaking to those areas of my body with love thanking it for its service and um those types of things really really helped that's uh I'm going to start talking to my toes and see how we go <laughs> I recommend it try it <laughs> I often talk to my legs as well. <laughs> well, because you know, like our bodies are like, what is it, seventy percent water or something like that? Like it's, you can alter ions by speaking positively to it. Like it's a thing. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get back to you when I'm walking on water. I'm worried. My, my friend Danny had more hair than me when he started Wim Hof, and he's still going, but the hair, the salad, it's not looking great. <laughs> Maybe he needs to talk to his hair follicles or send yeah. love to the hair. It's becoming less of a conversation because there's less of them. Sorry, Redback. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I can talk. <laughs> All right. So, hey, it's been uh, great chatting to you, Haley. Thanks very much for sharing your story. And uh, so where if, if people want to follow and catch up and see where you've been and what you're doing, where, where can people find you? Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, people can keep up with uh, what I'm doing. Probably Instagram is where I'm most active. Um, so just my name, Hayley Talbot, H-A-Y-L-E-Y-T-A-L-B-O-T. That's probably where I'm most in communication with people. And, um, yeah, I'm always getting up to something on there. Cool. All right. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing your next adventure. I'm sure there'll be something big around the corner besides the uh, – Indigenous Marathon. So good luck and uh, look forward to seeing you out there soon. Thanks.